Gretchen uh, was scheduled to pray today, but she's actually out. She's been sick this week, as well as Cynthia, who's also on our team, who's going to be singing up here, uh, as well as Mark, who runs our morning uh, building stuff. And so if our staff is any reflection of society, then my guess is that there are also folks in your own lives uh, who have been going through the seasons, ups and downs, whether they're physically ill or experiencing an acute kind of loneliness that the holidays and Christmas can sometimes bring on. Um, We're going to join our prayers with them, if we could, this morning, and hold them with us. I'm going to ask if you would join me in prayer. Let's pray together. God, our good Father, you've said that you know how to give us good gifts. Often before we know what it is we're supposed to be asking for. So this morning we're going to keep our requests small and humble. We would like, we would want, we need whatever it is you have for us. In this season, right now, in this service. I pray for those who need to let go of some things. Of anger harbored. Of wounds nursed of questions that have vexed the soul. I pray that uh, they would have the strength to set these things aside, just for a little bit. And for those here in our midst who are so full of pride, of self-assuredness, of any kind of spirit that keeps walls up and divisions clean, Uh, we pray uh, for a humbling. God, in this Advent season, more than anything, uh, we want to be prepared for your arrival in our lives. In this room, in our prayers, in our singing, we do confess that at times we come half believing that you will be here with us. But today we are trying to come fully believing that you are here with us. And that's enough. It's got to be enough. And not just here, God, but that you would be in all places. With those who are sleeping under a bridge. With those who don't have enough layers of protection from the elements. Those lost in family struggle just gets worse when family gathers. You're there too. In hospital rooms with Kate and Taylor and baby Liv, as they heal and get better, you're there. In the rooms of members of this congregation who've not been able to be at worship for months because of health and age, you're there. And the fact that you show up to each of us in a way that is fitting for all of us, we are immensely grateful. If this is the gift you are giving, your very presence, then we will not forsake it. In whatever way we understand, we will pass it on. So God, help us to keep our hearts and our hands open. Receive this worship. name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Okay, good morning. Today's scripture reading is from James, first chapter, ninth to eighteenth verse. It's divided in two sides. 
poverty and riches, trial and temptations. Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up, and the rich in being brought low, because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers a field. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. It's the same way with the rich in the midst of a busy life. They will wither away. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. May God bless the reading of the word. Amen. And again, thank you, James, for that reading. And thank you, choir. Uh, by the way, did y'all hear? There, somebody was singing up here with just the best bass tone. And you know who you are. I don't know who you are, but you know who you are. So thank you for that. Uh, friends, it's Advent season. And today is the second Sunday of Advent. And we're going to talk about gift giving. You heard the scripture reading from uh, the book of James today. I want to start, though, with a personal story. Um, I don't know if any of y'all resonate with this, but I really, I really do not like to open presents in front of people. Um, we had this tradition growing up. Everybody's kind of got their own traditions around gift giving. And then if you get married, you marry into new traditions around gift giving. And those may not be your traditions. I don't know what yours are, Ted. Might, might go with you. you might resonate with mine. Uh, in our family, when we would uh, wake up on Christmas morning, there would just be like all of these presents unwrapped under the tree. And it was this big overload moment of stuff. And it was great as a kid because all of a sudden you had all these things. But there was uh, no... There was very little performance because it was just all there in the moment. But when I got married, uh, Corey's family has this different tradition around gift giving. And they do this. They pass all the gifts around wrapped. Then you get this pile of gifts. So like, right, I've got a pile of gifts. And then, Ted, you would have like maybe one and a half gifts, depending on how good you had been that year. Uh, and then Hans would have a pile of gifts. And you would go around and take turns opening a present one at a time. Um, this is a terrible practice. I, because, so does anyone have this practice as well? And uh, who loves this practice? Oh, wow. Y'all are the ones that make people like me go crazy at Christmas and Advent. Uh, I've always been the kind of, when I was a kid, I was always the kind of kid, and now as an adult too, where I would much rather uh, take my gift and say, thank you, I know this means so much, it will mean so much to me when I open this. And then I would much prefer to go into my room lock the door, and open it in my own time. Have my own reaction to the gift. Uh, because what if it sucks? <laughs> and now, 
I'm, I'm now an adult, so like a good pair of wool socks is fantastic. But whenever I was Judah's age, you know, like socks is probably not the first thing on your list of things you're hoping to get. I always felt like there was this ex- expectation of performing joy when I would receive gifts. And I'm not really good at performing anything I'm not in the mood for. Uh, and so sometimes I would feel this sense of like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I received this. It also goes the other way. If I give a gift, I do not want to see you open that gift. Because what if I give you socks and you have the same reaction I had as a kid with socks? Then I've put myself out there. Like here's a bit of my heart and soul, Ted, open. And then you sort of open and just, right, have no reaction at all. I'm sitting there like with bated breath. So gift exchange for me has been a fraught experience. If you were here last week and talked about greenery, you'll know that part of my um, Advent uh, spirit is curmudgeon. And so maybe that's where this comes from. But honestly, I've thought a lot about this uncomfortableness. I inherited it from my grandfather, who actually uh, was a curmudgeon, like, certified. Um, I was named after him, and he knows it, and I know it. We would write each other letters talking about how to survive this life as curmudgeons. Um, But here's what I realized about my uncomfortableness with opening gifts up in front of other people, um, is I would become way too vulnerable, both in the receiving and in the giving of gifts. I was just exposed. Not simply if I had the right reaction or not, but like there was, again, there was a part of me in these gifts. And so... In giving a part of me, what if they didn't receive it or just received it with kind of haphazardness? What if I didn't understand the part of them that they were giving? And it just felt really raw. And I'm not always in the mood to be vulnerable. Maybe that's you too. Being vulnerable, being present, fully present, able to be wounded and able to feel joy is a very uh, tenuous kind of state. Today we're going to talk about gifts, about giving and receiving. And I want us to hold that idea of vulnerability kind of out in front of us. Now, gift giving in this season is in part because when you get together in parties, you give gifts. And we talked last week about how Christianity sort of adopted these midwinter festivals as its own practice of remembering when God was born in our midst in Jesus the Christ. And there are stories in our scriptures about wise men who bring gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so part of the gift giving is like, look, these folks, when they encountered Jesus as a baby, they brought him gifts. So we should give each other gifts. It's part of it. Or also that God in Christ is the gift that is being given so generously. And so this rises up in us, this desire to share with one another. Um, now, that is not always what gift giving is these days. I will fully admit that. Like sometimes gift giving is uh, maybe if you've come from a, a broken household, like sometimes it can be like one parent out gifting the other parent all in the spirit of Jesus. You know what I mean? Um, or it can be the sort of like the tally line. We gave kid A X number of dollars worth of gifts. So we're going to give kid B X number of dollars because we want to make sure that kid A knows they're loved more than kid B. I don't know how your family works. Uh, it's different sometimes, um, but at its best, it is a way to share a part of ourselves with the people we care about. Some of y'all have already started to exchange gifts. In fact, we've got a whole tree full of gifts here that we'll talk about at the end of the sermon. Um, I highly doubt there's like scorekeeping happening under this tree, but, but my understanding is this is the best version of generosity that we can practice right now. Um, 
I want to tell you a story, though, that comes from one of my uh, one of my heroes. So I have this book. I don't remember when I got it. It's written by Andre Trachma's daughter, Nellie Trachma Hewitt. Uh, so this is Andre uh, Trachma, and then Nellie's on the far right there. I've, I've mentioned uh, Andre Trachma before. He was a pastor, parish pastor, in La Chambon, France. And in this Huguenot village in France, this is kind of like beautiful... There's this documentary called Weapons of the Spirit that's about this village. You should read it. If you go to, like, the Holocaust Memorial Museum, there's this section in the museum for the righteous of the nation. So those who helped Jews during uh, Nazi persecution uh, who were themselves not Jews, there's this kind of section of remembrance. This village and this pastor is in that section. Um, so this village, they would, at some point, they got a knock on their door, and there were these folks looking for shelter. They were Jewish refugees fleeing persecution. And this group of Huguenot Christians, uh, pastored by uh, Pastor Trachma, just said, okay, like, come on in. There was really no thinking about it. There was no sense of, like, this is what we're being exposed to here. Uh, over time, he ended up, because of this activity, they saved, like, thousands and thousands of lives, tons of children included, but, like, nobody talked about it. And when they were asked later why they did this, he said, like, this is just what... Like, we happened to be reading our Bible, and it seemed like this is the kind of thing that Jesus would have us do. They would read the Sermon on the Mount a lot in this congregation. Um, but one of the things he would do, though, is a cold village. And so at Christmas, it was really, 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 really wintry. And the kids talk about, and in fact, Nellie talks in the preface of this book about how beautiful this season was. Because the church was this, like, probably not unlike this, but much smaller uh, and had the same kind of columns going across the side, hewn out of uh, logs in this case, and this sort of grand a stone aisle. And then at the front at the chancel, at Christmas, they would go cut down a fir, and then they would hitch it to some kind of donkey or horse on a wagon, and they would drag it up the middle aisle. And then they would pull one of these big stone tablets off of the floor to sort of stick the tree down and then they would decorate this thing and they didn't have any heat by the way we have a little bit more heat this week than last week's so thanks be to god um they just had two wood-burning stoves in the place and that would kind of heat everyone up but christmas and these gatherings were the time um, when joy would be like at its highest peak and there was this tradition that trachma had of uh, giving a Christmas story every Christmas day. This was like the day when all of it would be revealed. All the kids would show up. They'd be so excited, Nellie said, when she was a kid. And they would all gather around the tree. Um, some of our kids are here. Some of our kids are upstairs, so we're not going to have you come down. But he would tell a story every year that was sort of a riff on the Gospels, a riff on what's happening in the Bible. And here's the thing that's so beautiful about trauma is they had to find a way to talk about what it meant to live faithfully in Nazi-occupied France, without themselves getting killed. So they would tell these stories about angels and donkeys and Jesus in the manger, but would tell it in such a way that it sounded like a children's story, but it was also like a story of, of resistance and of empire and of how to survive the darkness of night whenever that darkness of night is in fact like the worst kinds of political unrest and violence. So he would tell these children's stories, and then these stories themselves kind of sustained this community. So that whenever somebody comes to knock on the door and says, can we stay they said, yeah, we have room. You can stay. So there's this story I came across I want to share with you. Oh, here's the crazy thing about this book, by the way. You can barely see it. I didn't, like, I just got this thing out on, like, on a used bookstore. 
and I just saw this week, Nellie signed it. That little girl, I know. And I'm really lucky because normally I mark all my books up and I just haven't felt that it was right to mark this one up now that I figured that out. Um, so as I want to do, I tend to leave my book up here after the service. So if it's gone, I'll know that one of you were like, ooh, that's a book I could use. You're buying it. Tell me if you get a signed copy too. Maybe she signed all the books. All right. So can I tell you all a story? The story that Andre Trockma shared with his church about Nicodemus. And it's a bit of a midrash on the Christmas story. Uh, a midrash is like a telling within the story. So there are all these gaps in our scripture that we're not quite sure what happened because it wasn't written down. Like Jesus from age seven or so until 30. It's not that's written down. So we sort of think about what happened in those periods in time. So what he does in this story is he takes the character Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus and asks, like, how can I sort of experience the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, you have to be born from above or born again. You remember that story? So he tells the story about Nicodemus seeking out the Christ child. All right. So I'm going to share the story with you because I think it's a great way of understanding what gift giving might mean in this season and what it meant for God to give, right? So all the children are gathered around in this little chapel in La Chambon, France. They're sitting down under the tree lit with actual candles and tinsel, and they're waiting to hear this story. And so Chakma tells them, this is a story about giving, about kindness to strangers and the humble and the poor. So there's this voice that's yelling out, Rabbi Gamaliel, Rabbi Gamaliel. So this rabbi is sleeping in his house, and he comes to the door. He's like, wait, What's going on? Turns out at the door is Nicodemus's wife. And she's really troubled. And she tells him, she says, like, something is wrong with Nicodemus. He came home and he's at home and he's sort of like pacing about and he keeps muttering these phrases. I've seen the king and all I had was my poverty. And he's just back and forth and he's radiating both joy and this kind of like kinetic energy. He went out from our house heavy laden with a coat, with a donkey, with a ton of our savings, with a sword. And he came back just with this dusty tunic on, nothing. And I can't figure out what's happened to him, what's wrong with him. And Rabbi Gamaliel says, like, take me to your house. Let me go see Nicodemus and what's wrong. Nicodemus at this time is a rabbi, young rabbi, happens to be very good at understanding prophecy and what God has been doing and what God will do. So Nicodemus, a few days earlier, had been in the court of Herod. And Herod is trying always to figure out, like, who is going to challenge my rule to the throne? So he asks this question, like, there are these prophecies that say that the king of the Jews is going to be born. And I would really like to know where the king of the Jews is going to be born. And so he gathers all of these prophets and all of these seers and he asks them all. There are these three wise men that say like, oh, the king of the Jews is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Having no understanding of what Herod's intentions are. And so Nicodemus had come home that day to his wife and he says like, I am greatly troubled. I need to go see this king. Would you please, wife, would you fetch this wool cloak that you knit me? Because it's pretty cold out. And also, would you saddle up the donkey? And then I need all of our savings, about 30 silver coins, to go with me. Because I've got to have a gift for the king. And he takes his sword for good measure in case he encounters any bandits. And he sets off. And so Gamaliel enters into Nicodemus' house, encounters Nicodemus in this sort of fit state of anxiety and exaltation, 
and he asks Nicodemus, what has happened to you? So Nicodemus tells the story about his journey to the child. He says he set off, coat, money, donkey, and sword. He said, yesterday morning I left Jerusalem through a gate located near the shanties of the poor, whose job it is is to sort garbage. And then a beggar squatting on the path stopped me and said, sir, give me your coat. I'm really cold. He was shivering in the early morning air. And so I answered, Nicodemus said, I can't give you my beautiful white woolen coat woven by my wife. Besides, I have an important mission to fulfill. I'm going to Bethlehem to greet the newly born Messiah. I don't have time to waste with you. It's like a very understandable thing. I've said it probably a hundred times on a Sunday morning when someone's asked me a question. I've got really important work to do. I can't be here right now. I've got to go preach the gospel. So later. But as I was about to go on my way, the words of the ancient prophet came to my mind. If you see a naked man, cover him. How could I ever appear in front of the Messiah, the chosen one, if I disobeyed such a commandment? And before I had time to think, I handed my coat over to this person in need and proceeded to Bethlehem, coatless, just now wearing a tunic. He's on his way, and Nicodemus tells Gamaliel, okay, and then I'm on my way, and I, I pass this fountain, and this robber surges out in front of me and grabs the edge of the donkey by the reins. He says, give me your money. I would gladly do so. But I'm on my way to Bethlehem to give it as a gift to this newborn king of the Jews. Don't you believe in the king of the Jews who must free Israel? Remember, they were craving this kind of story. And so this this robber says, "Uh, of course I believe in the king of the Jews. That's why I've been hiding in these bushes, getting ready. But you, Pharisee, you're telling stories to escape from me. So give me your money and quickly... And then Nicodemus says, I could have, I could have pulled my sword and, you know, just like knocked him out of the way. I don't know how you knock somebody with a sword. I've not used a sword. I think this is the motion that you do. He said, but as I was thinking about this, Isaiah's words came to my mind. To us, a son is given and he will be called the Prince of Peace. Should I commit a murder in order to celebrate the birth of the Prince of Peace? So I willingly gave this robber purse containing all of my money, all of my savings, and my sword, because now it was useless, and continued on my way to Bethlehem. So he's got now tunic, no sword, no money, no coat, just the donkey. You with me so far? I forgot I had pictures for you that I had so lovingly drawn. Boom! Because it's a story. He's coatless, and he's money and swordless. And he said, as my little donkey was trotting happily along, see Bethlehem out in the distance. And I was called upon by a man who was walking along the road. And the man said, Lord, and it was a foreign accent. It wasn't from Jerusalem. It wasn't from Israel. It was someone from another land. He said, I come from Damas and I'm headed to Alexandria in Egypt. My father is dying and has called me to be there at his side. But here's the problem. This road is full of stones that are sharp and my feet have been cut so much I can't go any longer. I need an animal to help carry me there. And Nicodemus answers the guy like, I need the donkey. I'm heading to Bethlehem to meet the king of the Jews. It's an important mission And the man says, like, the king of the Jews is no concern of mine because I'm a stranger in this land. Besides, Bethlehem is just like right down there. And Egypt is so far away. And 
Nicodemus tells Gamaliel, I was about to leave, right? This is enough. I've given away coat. I've given away money and sword. Can't give away my donkey. I'm never going to get there. The words of the psalm came to my mind. I was young and now I'm old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken. They are always generous and lend freely. Well, take my gray donkey, I told the stranger. I'm Rabbi Nicodemus from Jerusalem. Bring it back to me as soon as possible. So he lends his donkey to the man. And thus he arrives in Bethlehem, totally stripped of possessions, dressed only in these simple clothes. At this point, decently tattered. All right? He's got nothing, and it's just him at this point. So Gamaliel asks him, says, like, did you see the Messiah? Did you see the king of the Jews? And he said, well, not not immediately, not right away, because first I had to go through, and I love this phrase, the apprenticeship of poverty. There's been this idea over time in church history where poverty itself is seen as a, as a passage that many make, especially many saints of the church, um, to understand the true heart of God. And so Nicodemus is invited into this apprenticeship of poverty. And this is what it looks like. He goes to Bethlehem and he's got nothing. And he goes to the, like the head of the synagogue in Bethlehem. And he says, like, I'm here on a mission. I'm a rabbi, Nicodemus. And the synagogue leader says, you absolutely cannot be who you say you are because you appear to be a loser. One of the poor. One of the destitute. And so, no, you need to go on your way. So, so Nicodemus keeps going from like home to home, uh, religious leader to religious leader and telling them this story and they keep sending him away because this is what it looks like to be apprenticed to the poor. Mocked me, threatened me, chased me away. All the law forbids us to have contacts with low life people. So he ends up saying, nevertheless, I called one of the tax collectors. Even he treated me with scorn. Night was falling. I knocked on the door of a local inn. Please take me in for one night and I'll pay you later. And the inn maker says, an honest man doesn't travel without luggage or money. Get on your way. And he released the dogs after me. I was resigned to sleep on the ground, Nicodemus says. Poor and destitute. At this point, having given up on the mission to find the king of the Jews at all, and he says he's laying there and he smells somebody and he knows that the smell is not one of the upper crust of society. It smells like the pasture and the barns and it's one of the shepherds. Nicodemus says, good fellow, could you please give me a piece of bread and some shelter for the night? A bale of straw would be enough. And the man says, certainly, but not before you accompany me to the stable where a little child was born before yesterday and is sleeping. Every night we take food to his parents who are so very poor and from Galilee. And they have no money. They came here for the census. Plus, an angel appeared to us telling us that this was the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one. And they said, you're going to find a child wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger. And this is how you're going to recognize them. And at this point, Nicodemus was seized again by emotions. He's telling the story to Gamaliel. And he started back up again with that same pacing that he had with his life. I saw the king and all I had was my poverty. I saw the king and all I had was my poverty. So Gamaliel asks, Nicodemus, how, how is the king? 
Nicodemus says, listen to me. If I had entered the stable with my sword, dressed in beautiful white clothes, with a whole bunch of money in my purse, riding a great donkey, I would have not have been able to believe that the child of poor people was really the son of God. But because the shepherds accepted me as one of them, because they moved over to make a bit of room for me, because Mary and Joseph from Nazareth welcomed me with kindness, I understood that God did not choose the wise or the intelligent, the rich or the powerful, to manifest himself in the people of Israel. God chose the illiterate and the humble, the poor and the weak. Can you understand that, Rabbi Gamaliel? I fear you might not. Gamaliel says, tomorrow morning, I want to go back with you to Bethlehem. Go and rest, it's getting late. So the next morning they set off. And they set off on the same path. There's the shepherd and there's the manger. So three things happened on the way back. Three things that he couldn't have expected. So Gamaliel, Nicodemus are walking back the path that he'd gone the first time. And right when they get to that first gate, the man with the coat runs up and greets Nicodemus and says, what are you doing here? And Nicodemus says, where's my coat? Why aren't you wearing my coat? And he says, I'm so happy I found you again. You see, I gave this coat to the Messiah who's just born in Bethlehem. How so? Did you go to Bethlehem? Yes, my Lord. First, I tried to sell your coat because that's what I do when I have things that can make me some money and I have established business, but your goodness moved me so that I left to look for you so that I could return the coat. But once in Bethlehem, a shepherd showed me the stable where you had slept and a little child which was much poorer than myself. Before even thinking, I'd given the coat over and I was making this gift, my eyes were open and I understood that this child on whose feet I had spread the coat was indeed the Messiah you had talked about. And I hastily ran back to give you this good news. And the game says, uh, you're re- we're returning to Bethlehem right now to enter into the service of this Messiah. You want to come with us? And so off they go. And they get to the fountain. Now, you kind of know where this story is going a little bit because this is a story that pastor would have told to a group of young kids. Um, there's power in what might become obvious. Gets to the fountain. And the man who had robbed him falls at Nicodemus' feet and says, Lord, forgive me. Get up, Nicodemus says. I forgive you since you're repenting. Uh, do you want to give my money back to me? And the guy says, alas, no, my Lord, I can't return it. I gave it away. Take me to the judge if you want, but first, please listen to what has happened. When I opened your purse the other morning, I discovered that I had become rich and immediately decided to abandon my life of stealing and flee to Egypt. Went to Bethlehem, bought some nice clothes, was taken into a home because I had all this money and was treated to all of this food. Dined with these three wise men from the east and they told me this story they had seen a star in the sky and the previous night in the stable they had found the king of the Jews who must free Israel so I told myself this is indeed true what the Pharisee told me though I thought he was just making it up and so they went to the stable and saw the gifts that these men had brought myrrh frankincense and gold And he knew if the poor Galileans ever tried to sell these items, they'd be accused of stealing them too. Before giving it another thought, he poured all of the money onto the child's 
lap, a true fortune. He said, and as I did this, my eyes were open. And I understood this small child was son of David, the king of the Jews. I had been waiting for it and immediately looked for you so I could tell you this good news. And Nicodemus says, you are forgiven. Come with us to Bethlehem and enter into the service of this newborn child. So now there's four. On their way, filled with joy, and they get to the edge of Bethlehem. And they see off in the distance a very different sight than a few days before. Smoke is rising, and people are in the streets crying. They see a mom holding her child who has been killed. And they begin to panic. Realizing that all through the streets are Herod's guards who've come to slaughter the innocents. Because Herod had found out where this king of the Jews was and had a plan that was enacted. So all the kids to and under were to be killed. And so Nicodemus, with these other friends, runs to the stable and encounters the shepherds there. And everybody is crying. And this inn and the stables had been collapsed. And, and they're moving rocks and they're moving wood to find the dead baby and parents to bury the king of the Jews. As they start to cry, because the worst has happened, Nicodemus feels like a hand on his shoulder and says, is this you? He turns and he sees the guy with the donkey. And he says to him, Stop searching among the dead for the one who is still alive. I was looking for shelter last night and was welcomed by Mary and Joseph. Your little gray donkey and I spent the night in the stable. In the early dawn, divinely warned in a dream, Joseph the father took the child and mother and left for Egypt before the arrival of Herod's soldiers. Nicodemus says, what could we hope from their flight? Aren't they going to die from cold and poverty in the desert? The man says, they won't die. For the child was wrapped in a large coat of wool. His father carried a bag full of money. And his mother rode away on your little donkey, which I gave them so that the stones on the road would not wound Mary's feet. He said, but I thought the Savior of the Jews did not interest foreigners. The stranger said, so it was, but at the very moment when I gave your donkey away, my eyes were opened and I understood the little child was not the king of the Jews, but the Savior of all people. So like 30 years later, an important rabbi, one of the best-known doctors of the law in Jerusalem, went to consult a poor carpenter from Nazareth who happened through town. The great scholar was trying to locate the Messiah whose trail he had lost 30 years earlier. His colleagues had mocked him for his obsession with looking among the poor for the ignorant. Teacher, asked the scholar with humility, I know you're a learned man who came from God. What should I do to see the kingdom of God? And Jesus answered, you must be born again. You must start your life again in total poverty, as if you didn't know anything. Nicodemus understood he had reached the end of his long search and had found the child born in Bethlehem. Oh, I would have loved to have been in La Chambon, France, and sat under that tree as a child and listened to these stories. 
of what God has made possible in the arrival of the Christ child. As I read that story this week, and a whole host of others, it brought me back to my uncomfortableness with gift giving and receiving. Because I am deeply uncomfortable with apprenticing myself to poverty. It is not a place that I would feel comfortable being so exposed and vulnerable. The way that Trachma tells the story is with the texture and grain of the way that the Gospels tell the story. Which is that God's arrival into our world is lacking in all pretension. Deep and full of only humility. So vulnerable and fragile. Subject to death that will come. For so much of the time as I was growing up, I I misunderstood what gift giving was about. I thought that giving gifts was a way to short my own identity in those relationships. I thought it was a way to exercise my own privilege. Look what I can get from my kids. Look what my parents can give me. Like, right, it's all about the measuring. And over time, I've had to change and folks like some of you have helped me understand this change. Uh, for instance, I always pick I always pick on Rachel, but I'm going to pick on her again today. Rachel Pena. Um, if you don't know her, get to know her. But her gift giving is of the purest kind. And I can feel Rachel's heart in her giving. And I have no anxiety in receiving that gift. Because there's no performing I have to do. I simply can receive and feel gratitude rising up. There's something pure about the gift-giving process. I know she's not after anything but sharing. And she's part of many others who are the same way. One of my favorite books about generosity and gift-giving is a book called The Gift by Lewis Hyde. I've mentioned it before. And he says this, and this is what I believe is happening in the incarnation and the story of Christmas. I'll read it for you. It says, The gift moved towards the empty place. As it turns in its circle, it turns toward the one who has been empty-handed the longest. And if someone appears elsewhere whose need is greater, it leaves its old channel and it moves toward that one. Our generosity may leave us empty, but our emptiness then pulls gently at the hole until the thing in motion returns to replenish us. This understanding of a gift economy is one in which goods are held in common. And when they are passed on, they are never pulled out of that circle of community, but they are moved through it. When God leans down to hand over God's very presence, it in no way was meant to be a way to capture the Spirit of God in the world, but a way to lift us into that divine flow of generosity. We watch God become vulnerable in Christ. And we feel ourselves permission to ourselves become vulnerable, to give ourselves away. Because we believe in a different kind of structure for generosity, for giving, for the market economy. Where in giving something away, the gift and the value increases. Right? It was like the white tunic, and it was the coins, and it was the donkey, and who could have known? And yet these gifts are given away, and the man is left poor, and yet he finds everything that he was looking for. This is what I've come to find is the spirit of Christmas. 
talk about the spirit of Christmas a lot. And often you'll hear folks like trying to protect the spirit of Christmas like it's such a fragile thing. Um, like God isn't already involved in all of this movement of generosity and grace all of the time. God's fine. And is always inviting us in. The late saint and Archbishop of San Salvador, Oscar Romero, who was assassinated and martyred while celebrating Mass with his community, uh, understood what it meant to become poor and would write and give sermons and homilies during Advent and Christmas season. And one of those survived. And I just want to read you a portion of it because it reminds me of what the spirit of Christmas is about. It says, No one can celebrate Christmas genuinely without becoming truly poor. The self-sufficient, the proud, those who, because they have everything, look down on others, those who have no need, even of God, for them there will be no Christmas. Only the poor, the hungry, those who need someone to come on their behalf will have that someone. That someone is God, Emmanuel, God with us. Without poverty of spirit, there can be no abundance of God. In some level, gift-giving is a way for us to enter into a poverty of spirit. To practice a kind of reduction. A lessening of ourselves and our baggage. Partly, too, so we can receive the gift God is giving at Christmas. So that we don't presume that we have earned it. But that we have stripped ourselves of wool clothes and of silver coins and of donkeys and of security and apprenticed ourselves to the God who becomes poor. So that our hearts become open because what else is there to do but say, please can I have just a little bit of bread? And then the gift moves to the empty place and round and round it goes. I am... Corey and I sat in on a lecture and a poetry reading by uh, the poet Michael Guit. Is that how you say his name? Sure. G-U-I-T-E. You tell me how to pronounce it. Uh, it was at Fuller's Brim Center. And a uh, beautiful poet. And he, had a, he has a book of poems called The Singing Bowl. And... He tells this story uh, that I'll approximate for you, which is that he had this bowl. You know what a singing bowl is, right? It's like a metal bowl that you can sort of like rub around and it'll hum for you. If you're in handbells, you know this. Like Judy, right? You can make bells a singing bowl by turning them upside down and just like using a rod and, and they sort of hum out. Uh, he said the singing bowl and it was kind of toward the edge of his house and slowly it started to collect keys and coins and trash. And then you know, nothing happens can't resonate. So you kind of scoop the bowl out till it's empty. And then when it's empty, you can hear it. So we have this little bell in our office and it's empty. I'm fully aware that the spirit of Advent calls me to be like this. However, Most of Advent season is holiday season, and I feel like this, right? It's like too busy, and I don't want to spend too much money, and there's so much work to do, and I'm not exactly where I want to be with all my friends and family, and there's so much posturing, and it's like, (laughs) that's what it feels like sometimes. And you want to sing, and you want to rest. You want to have this space in your heart 
to receive the gift of God. Don't you just, that's what you want. Every good and generous gift comes from the Father above. And so we're waiting. And this is the season where we tell the story of God's arrival, Emmanuel. So he writes this book of poems titled The Singing Bowl. And and today I would like to read you what he wrote. It says, begin the song exactly where you are. Remain within the world of which you're made. Call nothing common in the earth or air. Accept it all and let it be for good. Start with the very breath you breathe now. This moment's pulse, this rhythm in your blood, and listen to it ringing soft and low. Stay with the music. Words will come in time. Slow down your breathing. Deep and slow. Become an open singing bowl whose chime is richness rising out of emptiness and timelessness resounding into time. And when the heart is full of quietness. Begin the song exactly where you are. I do not know what you've walked into here carrying. But I know if you're anything like me, you are here for the sliver or the grandness of hope that this story is itself true that we have not been left in the shadow lands. That somehow the gift of God has moved in a decisive way and continues to move toward us, not out of earning, but out of God's good graces. There's so much performing we do in this season, so much pretending that things are together and the world makes sense, but sometimes that's just not the truth of the thing. Sometimes we just feel empty. And that might be exactly where we need to be to receive the gift that God is giving. Friends and family, trust the vulnerability. Trust the exposure and the risk that you're being invited into. Christ has come. Would you pray with me? God, we are so grateful. But honestly, our gratitude is an approximation to our understanding of what it is you have in fact given us. Because it is more than we could imagine. And so we let go of the few things we are holding that make it hard to receive. We will try our best not to grasp at this story at this promise, at this provision, but just with open hands, receive. And like breathing in, trust that you are always moving toward us. And not just us, but all. 
not just the Savior of one of us or of those of us in this room, but of the world. And honestly, God, not just because you save us, but just because you are with us, we are grateful. And in fact, your very being with us is itself what saves and sustains us. So make us open vessels, emptied out and ready to receive. That we might never become the end of that sharing but just a point along the path. Thank you for Christ and all the surprising ways that Christ has shown up and continues to do so. Amen. Friends, we're going to bless these gifts and then we're going to sing a little bit more. Uh, So these gifts here, this is a good practice for us. Uh, These gifts, like 80 or so, is that right, Michael? Yeah, uh, in partnership with Friends Indeed, uh, we get the names of some kids who uh, may not have anything or very much under their tree or in their lives, and uh, in a partnership with them and a trusting that they know these families and have identified folks uh, who could use uh, kindness in this season. They give us these names, and then uh, you all grab those, and, and you don't just buy stuff, right? When I talk to you, when I come up here and I look, I can see a kind of selfless generosity. You're like, you're not going to put your name on a plaque that you did this. You're not going to put it in an email, the 80 people or so who bought these gifts, because that's not what this is about. You're probably not going to see when these kids get these to see, like, did they perform joy right? You're just, this, this is leaving us. This is leaving us into the world. So, we're going to send it not just uh, in this wrapping, but we're going to send it with a blessing. Would that be okay? Uh, I'm going to ask if you would stand. Uh, in the same way that you receive a benediction, uh, if you were able to stand, uh, if you're still seated where you are, you can reach a hand out if you feel comfortable. Um, but with these gifts, the blessing that goes with them from our community. And let me say these words over them. And then we'll end this time with amen. Leslie, would you like them to stay standing when we sing? Sure. Okay, y'all can stay standing. Um, But let's bless these gifts together. Your participation is your intention and your prayer moving toward them. And I will say these words with you and for you. God, bless these gifts. Bless the hands that will receive them. Your children, who you love. We are grateful that we have been made aware that there are others with open hands. And we are grateful for those in our congregation who are generous of heart and able to provide. Thank you for being not just with us, but with all. We send our blessing with these gifts. It is all we actually have to give. May these children experience love and kindness in whatever small or large way, a bit of safety. And all God's people said, amen. Would you like to sing together?